This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad. Enjoy! It is the Chicagoverse podcast on the Dynasty Podcast Network, featuring interviews with Chicago's premier artists in industry and creatives and culture leaders. Hosted by Haima Black, welcome to Chicago. Dynasty Podcast, recording live at Dynasty Podcast Studios in Chicago's south side of the Pilsen neighborhood. And I am here with Elia Einhorn, a, a guy who I have known through just the city and the culture and the music for a long, long time. And I've been aware of your work for a long, long time. And we've never formally sat down and done this, although we have talked about doing this for a long time. Um, and so I'm really glad we're getting to do it today here, uh, kind of the Monday after Pitchfork. How are you doing, man? Good, good. Thanks for having me through, Haima. We've talked about this stuff. We chopped it up at clubs when we run into each other yeah. at different events. But uh, now we're doing it on mic. Yeah, so you know, it's one of these things where... To give people some background, although I think a lot of people are familiar with your work, but you, on the Chicago level, part of Scotland Yard Gospel Choir, who if you're a certain age in Chicago, you know that name, and that really meant something here in terms of like the indie Chicago scene. Now you have your own music solo career uh, that we're going to talk about, and also you're heavily involved in the Talk House Podcast Network um, and Pitchfork Radio, and you know I say this a lot on this podcast, but you got a lot going on, man. Yeah, I am... Can we swear? Yes. I am staying busy as fuck, man. <laughs> it is, it's a blessing and a curse, but uh, 97% blessing. Yeah. A lot of different pots on the stove here, but but I, I kind of enjoy that because I feel like they fuel each other. You know, the, the creativity kind of bounces around. You know, when I have a day off, it kind of like, it's fun for like an hour and then it, by like 3 p.m. it like drives <laughs> me crazy. I like being busy, so I feel you. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so, like I mentioned, it's the Monday after Pitchfork. So you were at Pitchfork. You are managing, heading up, curating the Pitchfork Radio. Like, talk about your role, what you do with that. Sure. Well, and then that's why my voice is also a little bit lower and scratchier than usual. <laughs> I, I was hosting seven hours a day, all three days of wow. Pitchfork Fest, and um, I'm a little uh, worse for the wear. But yeah, so so I host Pitchfork Radio. And, um, and that involves curating, along with the Pitchfork editorial staff and business sides, a lot of the uh, guests that come on. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different elements to it, but essentially I'm a paratrooper that we drop in. We have a little <laughs> team that drop into different cities and create pop-ups from scratch. So we've done, you know, as far west as L.A., we've gone as far east as uh, London and Paris. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And we'll do like, you know, a few days, a week at a time of uh, radio from different cities that, that involves a lot of the local scene and, of course, national and international acts. And, you know, before the mics were on, you and I were kind of like just uh, tossing around some of the pros and cons and advantages, disadvantages, challenges, and and perks of kind of like this lifestyle, this, this radio, broadcast, podcast, mm-hmm. creative music lifestyle. But, man, how great does that have to feel when, like, you're on assignment going to LA or London or something like that for a brand like Pitchfork to go talk to, you know, Lowe or Charlie XCX or Death Cat for Cutie or whoever. Dude, it is fucking awesome. <laughs> I'm not going to front. It is fucking awesome. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I read a lot of um, radio hosts' autobiographies. And one thing that Charlemagne the God said in his book is how he always remembers that the brand is so much bigger than him and to keep his ego in check. And, and I really feel like that, you know, like with Pitchfork, it is, I just feel so lucky to get to work with one of the best music websites ever, you know, I mean, in, in the, the world. I mean, in the, what I'm going to call the blog age, but let's, let's really call it the digital age. It's yeah, like, it's yeah. what Rolling Stone 
you know, no knocks in a Rolling Stone, but it's like for this generation, Pitchfork is Rolling Stone. Totally, you totally. Know? Yeah, man. And so, yeah, I just feel, I, I use the word blessed, although I'm not a religious man. I don't know what's out there. But, <laughs> but you know, whatever is out there, I thank it that I get to work with them. And like, and the thing is, you know, Pitchfork really has some of the best people in the world doing what they do. And so it also really challenges you to step your shit up, you know, like sure. bring your A Absolutely. game because everybody else is bringing their A game and, and, and you want to be in that mix. You want to be, you want to be impressing the people who are impressing you. The Pitchfork name means so much. And Pitchfork Festival is a, you know, it's a festival that never disappoints. It's a festival that's never been like, oh man, that's when they like, they really went off the rails and they really just sold out. But it's like, no, every year that is like, you know, among, I mean, Chicago's lucky that we have really great lineups. Riot Fest has really great lineups. Lollapalooza, you know, hit or miss sometimes, but like Lollapalooza, when it comes through, it comes through. But Pitchfork, man, delivers every single year. Pitchfork always does. It's, I I call it my favorite midsize festival. Yeah. Because I think it's 20,000 cap per day. And uh, and while that's a lot of people, like, but it's not know, it's not Lollapalooza. It's not Lala exactly. Lala like, my favorite a, a, big one is Primavera in Spain in Barcelona. Oh wow! And that's that's a fucking amazing fest that I've gotten to go to as a fan and also work a number of times with Pitchfork and Talkhouse out there. But, but yeah, yeah, just the size of the the size and scope and value of the brand is like exactly it's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it's really unparalleled. So, you know, you did Pitchfork for three days. Wait, can I tell you something funny, though? Sure. If you don't mind. Yeah. You know what? You know what my first introduction was to Pitchfork, though, as an artist? I got a call. This is when Scotland Yard Gospel Choir was sort of having our moment, you know. Right. And I always qualify that as saying we were never a huge band, but we were. You guys a band were that, like noted, though, in Chicago. We like, were, we were. when I was younger, I would pick up New City or, you know, like going right, back and we'd be or on Illinois Entertainer or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, you guys yeah. were like. You know, you're right there with like a Liz Fair and Urge Overkill, a local H or like Wow, any well, of- thank you. That I disagree, but I very much appreciate it. But I mean, in Chicago, like Canasta, like there were the bands who were not obviously like maybe like Pumpkins or Kanye level, but who like in terms of the local impact and even like being able to tour nationally yeah, and still being indie, yeah. you guys were absolutely like way up there. Totally. We, we were, man. And it was like. You know, we were never going to be the big band, but we were going to be the band that got to tour with Arcade Fire. You know, and that, that Which stuff is huge. was always awesome. Yeah. yeah, I think about it this way: we got to do so many things that other bands only dreamed about getting to do. You know, and we yeah. still had bigger goals that didn't happen for different reasons. But, but anyway, so 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 Pitchfork, you're in right, so Pitchfork. Pitchfork. So yeah. Dave Eggers, the author Dave Eggers, mm-hmm. was a huge fan of our band, and we were a huge fan of his writing. Heartbreaking work of staggering genius. His first book was really big for me. I'd lost my mother to cancer. It's about his parents dying and. And so Eggers calls me up one day and says, Elliot, we have a benefit tonight in Chicago and we're not selling tickets. And I know you were going to do one for us for his 826 Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah. his 826 series of um, literary uh, classes for, for kids. He said, we're really bombing on ticket sales. Can you sign on to give it a boost? Can you guys come play? And And I'm thinking... One, you're misperceiving how big this band is. But two, <laughs> yes, I totally will. But I sure. can't get the whole band. So I showed up with a cellist and a trumpet player, right? Mm-hmm. So remember, this is a benefit. Right. So it's Ira Glass is the host from This oh American God. Life. Ben yeah. Gibbard is the headliner. Holy John shit. John Roderick from The Long Winters is there. And us. This is the most NPR lineup Eggers, I've ever heard. Yeah, exactly. And Eggers <laughs> is reading um, with Valentino mm-hmm. from What is the What from that book. So we play and we sold it out. You know, all of us collectively sold that. We raised a ton of money. Pitchfork reviews the show and reviews me negatively. 
and said, <laughs> the guy said, uh, the reviewer said, Scotland Yard Gospel Choir are a third-rate Bell and Sebastian. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> but did you have to review a benefit? A benefit show yeah. with only half of my band that, that I only got the call from Dave Eggers that morning to do? That's like, that's just unfair. Yeah, and to be fair to That's Pitchfork, a pop quiz. Yeah, totally, totally. Being your whole grade for the semester. Exactly, yeah. exactly, man. And, and, you know, to be fair to Pitchfork, that, that was, you know, relatively early on, and they, they don't do that kind of Pitchfork thing Pitchfork was a, a little bit more fanged, a little bit. A lot oh, more for fanged sure, for sure. when they first came yeah. out. I'll never forget. There's one line of Pitchfork that I'll never forget. It was when Courtney Love's solo album came out. I think early mid two thousands, and um, and I mean this this is a line that they would never get away with now. But they were reviewing a new single, and the review opened up with Courtney Love's credibility is so shot it might as well be wearing Converse in her greenhouse. <laughs> and I was like, holy fucking shit, are you fucking kidding me? Like oh my God. that's like fifteen years ago, and I still remember that line. Pitchfork would never. Pull I wonder that now. who wrote that. It was. See, I, mean, I think they would. I think they would. Did you read that little Nas X piece? Ah, uh, no. Alphonse Pierre wrote it. I was like, oh, my God, they're coming out swinging on it. But, it, but it's so That was funny just like that, taking a golf club to a baby, though. I thought I was just like, holy shit, that's so <laughs> fucking mean. Although so, I would say Courtney, Courtney can dish it, too. Well, sure, sure. Courtney, Courtney can, can take it. it. I just thought, like, what a fucking line. Like, it, it just that, really that's, made that's an impression. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, it's so funny that my first personal experience with Pitchfork was, was so negative. But, but, you know, later on when the Scotland Yard Gospel Choir got in that terrible tour accident, yeah. you know, they were really helpful. They published a, a story about it with the link to the to – the, uh, I don't know if it was GoFundMe back then or what company it Something, was, but yeah, because we, we had huge medical bills. And, yeah, and, and, I mean, that was a big story. I remember that. really helped out. And, and you know, Pitchfork – published that and that that was so powerful for us but yeah it, it was a funny start to a, a, what is now a fantastic relationship and and how did you get connected because i feel like there's a couple of things we're going to talk about here is like basically like the podcast work the pitchfork work and your solo music but how did you get connected to pitchfork like I, well let's let's tell this story how did you go from scotland yard gospel choir to where you are now where your career is that you are heading up these podcast projects and you're very much in the broadcast world how do you make that transition? Because some artists are able to do that, where they're able to go from the music side to, for lack of a better title, kind of the, the industry side or the sure, producer side, sure. and other people can't. It's very long, and I'll try to do a short version. Whatever. It's a podcast. And you can just tell me to shut the hell up. No, man, I'm, I'm but I'm interested in that because one of the things that I always aim for with this podcast is I do want this podcast to be ideally at its best a resource where people listening can take away maybe some useful advice, even though everybody's career path is going to be different, but like just, I like to demystify some of the mechanics of how these things work. Totally. I appreciate that. It's funny. I was asked to speak recently at a college radio conference in New York. And what I told these you know young people is follow your passion project, whatever that is all the fucking way, because so many people that have gone on to different levels of success in different areas later, had no idea what those other areas even were. They were just following something that they loved and maybe they created a blog. Maybe like me, they formed a band. Maybe mm. they, you know, and then it turned into, you know, this connected to that, connected to the other. And then all of a sudden you're in this other position that you never even considered, right? No, it's true. And it's like, I, I have seen that, you know, we, we've definitely seen people who have moved from one side of the creative equation to the other, yeah. but it's hard. It is hard. So I'll give a very abbreviated version, right? Yeah. So Scotland Yard Gospel Choir, as we mentioned, had had a number of successes. And as part of that, I was the front man. I would do all the interviews 
So I did hundreds of interviews, you know, as I the artist. I have to think we had you on Local 101. Yeah. I'm almost positive. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, did, we did something uh, when you were working with Chris Payne there. Yeah. Yeah, man. And, um, <laughs> and so two things came out of that as far as radio. One is that I fell into being a guest co-host of a show on what was then WLUW, what is now Chirp sure. Radio. 88.7, yeah. Yeah. And the other mm-hmm. thing is I Under was Sean, asked... Sean Campbell? Sean Campbell, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the other thing was that WXRT had me on as an artist, and the program director, Marty Leonard, said to me, listen, you're really good at this. Would you be interested in coming on to host for me? Oh, my God. And, you know, for me, that was so huge that's growing huge. up in Chicago. That's one of the biggest radio stations. and um, It's an institution. It I mean, really they still... Uh, all those... Well, Terry Hemmert recently... Step down, but pretty much everybody else is still on the air. Lynn Bramer, the regular guy, is still yeah, going. I yeah. mean, th- that guy, like, I don't know how that's still happening. Did they just record 17,000 of those in the 80s? Because, like, that segment's still on the air, but it's like, I remember listening to that, like, in the 80s and 90s. Oh, totally. you know, so 100%. XRT is this timeless institution. Yeah. And so it really meant a lot to me to get to do a little bit of hosting for them. And it wasn't a ton. Uh, the only reason it wasn't a ton is because I ended up moving to New York just as well, we were and, starting to work. And everybody together. who's there is cemented there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I, uh, so here's where it gets nebulous, right? So I was throwing parties as there were an offshoot of Scotland Yard Gospel Choir called This Is, back then it was called This Is England. Mm-hmm. And it was an all British music party. You can't hear it in my accent, but I was born in Wales. I'm a British citizen. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of my life over there. And so I was really into the Manchester scenes, the Manchester stuff. and Right. But so much more than that. The post-punk, the like, you know, the dance stuff, the rave stuff. And so I threw these nights that were... We would do it at the Whistler. We would do it at mm-hmm. Shuba's upstairs. And oh, yeah, yeah. The only rule was it had to be British music. And out of that, a friend of mine approached me and said, I want to throw my own night. I want to do a geek music night. And he called it Geek Easy. <laughs> and he said, I want a book. And this is, this is sort of dating us, but he said, I want to bring in to headline one of these, Samwell, who is the what, what, and the butt guy. Oh, my God. You remember what, yes. what, and the butt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The early day of what we would now call memes. Right, exactly. Yeah. This was a huge YouTube phenomenon. This sure. was like this was one of the first or very the early first on. like there was that it chocolate hit 60 rain. million. Yeah. And sixty million views then was right. essentially now like two billion. You know, right. like it's what the only the biggest it was artists Star get. Wars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we actually booked him. We reached out, we tracked him down, we booked him, and we all went out to eat. And I was asking him about his infrastructure for his team, you know, like who's booking him, who's managing him. He had nothing. Yeah, And he said to me, would you manage me? I actually don't know how to do this. I had this crazy viral hit. And I said, no, I will not manage you, but I will help you in a managerial role until you get a real manager. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as friends, you know, we were hanging out. And so, okay, fast forward. In that capacity, I got us a gig at a big music festival in Madrid. Mm -hmm. And they flew us over, and I met on the plane home the band Battles, who are an amazing prog band and have Chicago roots themselves because okay. it's Don yeah. Caballero. It's Ian mm-hmm. Williams from Don Cab yeah. and Storm and Stress. So I know this is convoluted, but it's the only way to tell No, it. and it, it, I had no idea that like your like, secret origin to like the talk house involved the what, what, and the butt guy. Yes. I'm the only person... I did not see has, that M. Night Shyamalan twist coming. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. I, I, I am relatively sure that I'm the only person who has starred in a Bell and Sebastian video and been an extra in a Samwell video. I, I'm the, that sure has I'm to, you're the only person the only in that. Person. I bought tickets <laughs> this summer to Ariana Grande nice. and Slipknot. That's what I'm, I'm talking about, I'm the only about, person in that Venn totally, diagram totally. who's like, 
equally excited for both of those things. That's fucking awesome, yeah. by the way. But so I had been living in New York at that point, and I was doing off-Broadway uh, music director work. So, so Ian from Battles and I realized we lived down the block from each other. We, we take the cab home together from the airport, from the Festival of Madrid, and Ian comes out to see one of my shows. So I was, you know, on like 42nd Street, we, had, we were performing in a beautiful theater there. I think it was called The Pearl. Mm-hmm. And he really enjoyed it. And one day I get a call from him and says, a friend of mine runs a record label and they need someone to produce a podcast. I know you know how to produce these whole shows and you know music. Would you be into producing this potentially? And I said, yeah, man, you know, put me in touch and I'll hear what he has to say. That turned out to be the very first Talkhouse podcast ever. It was uh, Hamilton Lighthouser and Carrie Brownstein. And the funny thing was, I'd fucking toured with Hamilton. I yeah. played with the Walkman. You know, Scott Lee right. played with the Walkman. We'd hung out and watched the fucking elections downstairs at some club in Madison. Oh, my God. Together, wow. You know? Yeah. So it was just sort of having been in the game so long and created all these different things that I was passionate about. And, you know, this sort of crazy confluence came together. And then when I was given the opportunity to work on TalkHouse, I just really ran with it. And it went from being um, the engineer to being the producer to then when Michael Azrad left TalkHouse to being the host myself. Yeah, because I look at you as like the face, and I know you're not the founder, but it's like I, it, it seems for all intents and purposes that you're kind of like steering the ship there. In some ways, I, I, I'm, you know, our publisher is Ian Wheeler, mm-hmm. and one of Ian's strengths, which I also think was one of Ryan Schreiber at Pitchfork's strengths, mm-hmm. is they pick their lieutenants and then they let them do what they do best, you sure. know, with oversight and with guidance, you know, which I value very much from both of them over the years. So I, I feel like that perception might be because I'm sort of the one that's out hosting the events. I'm the one who's doing the interviews live, you know, like yeah. when, when people want to talk to the talk house a lot of the time, but really it's this, it's this very tight knit team. And there's, there's not many of us. I think there's six full-time employees at talk house that are, we're doing everything together. I mean, you know, as somebody who, from the podcast side, but who is not involved in the talk house myself, you know, and if you are not familiar, talkhouse.com is a great place to start, but it's like, I just, I look at the execution and the scope and the quality level of what you guys do there with these podcasts and, and correct me if I'm off the mark with this, but it seems like the, at least part of the premise of Talkhouse podcasts are you take two, like, it's not so much about like one, you're not, there's not like a Mark Marin. Right, like exactly. where like the host exactly. is the star. It's like you might get someone from Death Cab and someone from Sleater Kinney to interview each other, mm-hmm. or somebody from like an A twenty four flick, you know, like Hereditary to interview some other you know upcoming filmmaker. But it's like a, it's a lot of pairing creatives to talk to each other. That's exactly it. The whole philosophy is get the industry out of the way and let the creative's voice be the defining voice. So whether that's the written pieces for the site, for TalkHouse.com, or whether that's the podcast. And for the podcast, it pairs two artists, occasionally more, but typically one-on-one, in long-form, unmoderated conversation. And, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about who we want to pair, why we want to pair them, doing all the research, consuming a ton of films and music all the time, and, you know, going to shows to see who's interesting, going to see, you know, movies and watching television shows and stuff. And, and we talk about this stuff. You know, we kick around ideas. Sometimes I'll send an email and say, what do you guys think about this artist? You know, I, I'm on the fence about it. Do you, do you feel like they're, they're going to be an important artist to people or do you feel like they're just, you know, of the moment? And, and we have these discussions and we get pretty deep about it. No, I mean, clearly there's a lot of curation in there. I mean, I, I relate to that, even though it's a different 
execution of this same, I think, spirit, but it's like I was doing, well, I did Local 101 as the producer. I did this radio show at Q101 Radio for, for yeah, which was a huge, decade man. and a half. That, yeah. was, that was a defining show here. Oh, my God, yeah. It's a, it's a legacy show, and I got to be the producer for a decade. And then, you know, in the middle of that and still to this day, I started doing Dynasty Podcasts. But, you know, I went from booking interviews to hosting the interviews on my podcast. But somewhere along the way, you know, like five, six years into hosting one-on-one interviews, I mm-hmm. thought... Yeah, like reading Batman's cool. Reading Justice League is a lot of fun, though, or watching the Avengers. Like people love that kind of concept because suddenly you have like instead of Captain America or Iron Man, you choose one. You have seven, (laughs) you know, you have seven topics on the pizza. And so I started to put that into the form of like these panels in Chicago where I thought, okay, well, it's cool if I get to talk to one photographer. Let's talk to four photographers and like hear the full scope of what all of them have to say or four music journalists. But I love that idea of putting multiple creatives in the conversation. I guess for ego's sake, I still put myself in that conversation with them as the moderator. But that idea, yeah, of just like letting the creatives kind of like move the conversation forward instead of just one-on-one. Yeah, but I would say, you said for ego's sake, but I think it transcends <clears throat> ego because there is a necessity when you have enough people involved to have somebody who's following the through line. Sure. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And that's where in Talkhouse, sometimes we have a lot of editing on the back end. Right. You know, if there's sometimes it, more at festivals than when we've, than when we're in studio, but sometimes we'll have something planned where there's two people in conversation, but then the other band members are really into the other artists. They want to come sit in. Right. All of a sudden we've got four people. Two and of that, them off mic. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know what? Uh, that takes a lot of editing on the back end. And those are situations where it would have been better if it had been a panel, maybe with a moderator. And, you know, obviously if it's not a good conversation, we're not going to run it. But yeah, what we do, you know, with the one-on-one, it really sort of escapes the bonds of conventional talking points. Sort Mm -hmm. of like, I always tell the artists, these conversations start where the talking points that you tell the local paper in Iowa stop. You know what I mean? Sure. I'll say that in the intro. I'll, yeah. I'll let the audience know and I'll play a clip of your music so that they know what you sound like and what your new music is like. And then we want to get way deeper than that. We want to take a fucking deep dive in. I don't know if you've listened to this, but it's like Conan has this great podcast now. Conan O'Brien, who I am on a first name basis with all of a sudden, but it's like people know Conan. What up, Conan? Yeah. Um, who's definitely not listening to this. But Conan <laughs> O'Brien has a podcast now. And it's great because, you know, it's a lot of the larger you know, celebrities that he'll, he will interview, but he, you know, makes a point to kind of talk about this in the podcast. It, it's not him sitting down with Seth Rogen or whoever for three minutes being like, oh, you're in The Lion King. That opens this Friday. You know, like it's, it's mm-hmm. him talking to somebody for 40 or 60 or 90 minutes. And they may talk about like their father's depression or something, but it's like he actually gets to like go beyond just like promoting whatever that thing is that they're there on his late night TV show for for four minutes and actually gets to have a real conversation with these people. Oh, it's so interesting. You know, I'm I'm so lucky to have that on Pitchfork Radio where I get to go really deep with artists that I love. Because, I mean, some of my favorite shows are like, like, I love The Breakfast Club. You know The Breakfast Club? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes they'll get really, they'll really go deep on stuff if if people are willing to go there. And it's the same thing I love about Marin. You know, I don't want to hear just the talking points. I You know. Like, people already know to go see Avengers Endgame. Right, Like, you don't exactly. have to tell me to do... Like, that's already... Exactly. Yeah. But if you have somebody... Yeah, getting in-depth. And, I mean, that's even why I started podcasting, because I loved working on Local 101. I loved working on Q101, and that was a great experience all around. Like, I have just nothing but good things to say about it. But we only had an hour show. And we would kind of, like, squeeze in maybe, like, 70 minutes a show every mm-hmm. Sunday. But we had an hour show, 
and we had anywhere from like, let's say, 7 to 14 minutes of commercials. And first and foremost, we need to play music on that show. So we would, on a good week, you know, we maybe have five minutes, you know, two or three five-minute segments for short interviews. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want to interview talent that maybe wouldn't make sense for even this specialty show. Like at the time it was like Flostradamus. Like we, we weren't, it sounds weird to say this. DJs were not a big deal. We would not yeah. interview DJs. Yeah. And I saw these two kids, you know, Josh and Kurt. And I was like, I want to have a platform where I can just interview them for, you know, half an hour if, if totally. we want to go that long totally. and we would throw that up on MySpace, And then that suddenly was podcasting. Well, and you were the first in the game here, man. You know? Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing because it's a weird thing, and I don't know if you guys have seen this because it's like there's pros and cons to being first through the door. Like oh, I've, yeah. I've gotten to build this podcast class business because of it, which is great, but we, we've never even had like any press in Chicago ever. We have no yeah, press weird. in Chicago in any that's capacity weird. because when we started in 2005, no one gave a shit about podcasting, and now people only want to write about new podcasts. It's too old. So it's this weird thing of just like the timing is so off on some scales, but at the same time like – there's pros and cons. I think, you know, with Talk Us, we were sort of in the right place at the right time. We were pretty early in the game as far as the bigger music podcasts that started to pop. But at the same time, um, other people had blazed a trail and shown that it was possible. I just sounded very Chicago. It was possible. <laughs> but, um, but we do still get a lot of press because we have so many different styles of artists that, you know, it's funny, like, Sometimes our stuff is covered on like XXL. Right. Sometimes our stuff is covered on paste. stereo gum. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, Sometimes exactly. it's paste. Sometimes it's like, you know. There's so, a difference between complex and paste. Exactly. They're different and, worlds. And, you know, there's pluses and minuses to that, right. right? One of the minuses is I think that we often have to win listeners over with each episode in a way. Sure, because right? each episode is a standalone anthology and you exactly. might be like, you wow, might not know the artists. These are yeah. two terrible episodes of Black Mirror and then you get to a different episode which has nothing to do with it and you're like, this is my favorite episode of Black Mirror. Exactly, exactly. You know, like you're right, so you are kind of starting from scratch each time. We are, but you know, on the other hand, what we hope is that, you know, that as curators that our subscribers trust us, you know, and we have a big enough subscribership that that seems to be the case for Clearly. at least a number of thousands of people that they'll listen to whatever we do. And and that means a lot. That relationship means a lot. And again, that circles back to why we have these deeper debates about who comes on and and who we pair them because with. Because you guys care about quality and there is a strong curation. You're not just letting anybody come on the podcast. Right. We're fucking music nerds, man. We're professional music nerds. As, as my wife puts it. You know, we're professional music nerds. My wife is Amy Phillips, who is <clears throat> the longest running employee of Pitchfork. She's the managing editor now. And so, you know, I first heard that term from her and I was like, that's exactly what we are. Mm -hmm. We're professional music nerds. We're people who were so obsessed with it that we did it anyway. And, you know, we consumed it all the time and it consumed us. And then somebody was like, hey, I'll pay you to do something with this knowledge that you have. You're essentially Jack Black and uh, what's his name in fucking High Fidelity, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but maybe totally. not quite so Except I like aggressively antisocial. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and I want to do a couple more podcast questions before we get into like your your personal music, your own solo project sure. that I also want to get into. But like, you know, so you have been, how long have you been doing the podcast thing now? How long has this been? <sighs> Six years. Yeah. Maybe. So that's a significant amount and, of time. And especially radio in the, before that. So, yeah. you know six years in the podcast specific, which it's so tough because it's blurred lines there, right? You know what I mean? Radio and podcast, broadcast yeah. and podcast, they're very closely linked. Yeah, exactly. But it's like you've you've been doing this long enough to see some changes, to see developments. Like how do oh, you view sure. podcasting 
now in 2019 because every week we see an article that's either being like podcasting is a goldmine or podcasting is at the very end and we've hit peak podcasts. But, you know, I think the truth is somewhere in between both those. Like, how do you feel about it? I agree. I, I often read this stuff and I just laugh to myself at the ignorance of the people writing it because it's like in the early days of TV, just being like, TV's a thing. TV's not going to be a thing. Yeah. TV's a thing. It's like <laughs> podcast. These talkies will never last. People don't want to go see movies with sound. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's also like to lump all podcasts into an umbrella is ludicrous. I had bad you know, pizza like, today, so pizza right, is exactly. over. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's so it's silly. Like, you know, people will say to me like, oh, you work in podcasting. Well, I love, you know, these true crime podcasts. And, and, and I do too, but it has zero to do with what I do. <laughs> right. I don't give a shit about true crime podcasting as far as my career. I want to talk about music. I want to talk about art. I want to talk about film. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I can draw inspiration from their formats and I can, you know, be inspired by their host and their production. And But like whenever people talk about podcasting as a sort of a monolithic Entity, it's to me, it's just laughable. And, and it, well, it's really like saying like I like music or I don't like music. Exactly. Like that's just so fucking exactly. Broad. It's yeah. just, and, and you know, part of that sort of, and I suppose this addresses your question and in, in, from another angle is we have sort of hit that point where I think of it as when Garage Band came out. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And then yeah, all yeah, of yeah. a sudden there were exponentially more bands. And some were super lo-fi but fucking awesome. Some were bands that were terrible and would have never made the cut before if they couldn't just do it themselves. You know what right, I mean? Yeah, Nobody yeah. would have ever believed in them and it, they would have died out sooner and the world would have been better for that, right? <laughs> but then, you know, I call it the beat happening effect. Like, I want podcasts like the band Beat Happening, which are like lo-fi but amazing. I want right. those to be able to exist and those are some of those are shows that never would have gotten to a production level like you or I have for our shows, you know? So there is a little bit of, like, oversaturation for sure. And and I, I don't know. I'm not a great industry predictor. I famously told Javier Munoz, who uh, went on to become Hamilton under Lin-Manuel Miranda, sure. that... Who, who told me we were friends and he told me, yeah, Lin's writing a new show. It's going to be a rap show about Hamilton. I told him... Dude, get another gig now. Abort, <laughs> jump idea. ship. Yeah. So don't look to me for like, you know, industry changing advice. You're like, but, listen, John, Ringo, Paul, I got to tell you guys, <laughs> this is not going to happen. You know what I would have told them? Honestly, Beatles, terrible name. Like, come Change on, it. guys. Yeah. Who's going to go for that? Right, right, yeah. right. So who the fuck wants to listen to me either? At the end of the day, I'm just another opinion, right? But you know what? I do think, and I'm not just saying this because you're here. I think that it's important for, and a lot of people voice this on Twitter too this week when there was that article about like, have we hit peak podcasts, which is really ridiculous. If anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, the basic concept is there was this article that ran in the New York Times. It was titled, Have We Hit Peak Podcast? And the premise was that there was a podcast host who was speaking in the article and she basically said, well, me and my friend chose the laziest name we could. We recorded six episodes of a podcast on an iPhone 5 in the library, and somehow we didn't get rich or famous, so we quit. We expected that within six episodes we'd have huge sponsors. Yeah. And then the New York Times was like, is podcasting over? Which is, of course, absurd. And if it sounds like I'm exaggerating, go read the article. Sadly, I'm not. But what I'm getting at with this is I think it's valuable to get your insight because podcasting is not something where there's a lot of newcomers to it, which is great. Mm -hmm. There aren't many people who have been doing it for six, ten years, you know, like with right. the radio broadcast stuff thrown in, who you can get perspective on. And I even I don't know that many people who 
are on that side of it because there's a lot of podcasters who've maybe done it for a year and a half, three years, maybe maybe four years. Mm-hmm. But like that's about as far back as it goes for most people. So I think your perspective is actually really valuable because not a lot of people are in that same space as where yeah. you are now, you know? Well, thank you. I, I, I'm glad that people, and people do ask me my opinion a lot, and I appreciate that, but I, but I always make sure to qualify it as I'm just one guy with one set of experiences. I'm not, uh, you know, subscribe to, what is it called, Hot Pod? Quads, right, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not in a quad, but, you know, yeah, like, yeah. again, like... Check that out if you want more of a bigger picture. Sure, absolutely. Nick Kwan, Hot Potter are absolutely 100% the resource to go to. Yeah, I agree. To. Um, and inside podcasting as well. And, and yeah. But like the work you've been able to do with the Talk House, with Pitchfork Radio, you have absolutely certainly built a lane for yourself. You have built a brand. You have built opportunity. And, and you've, I would say you've made it, I think, on a lot of levels. You know what I mean? Like the fact Thank that you've been you. able to go do Pitchfork Radio in like London. That's not a fluke. That's not Thank like, you. oh, we did one cool thing one time. You know, like we opened for Nirvana one time at a little bar and that was the as far as it went. So it's like, you know, podcasting I think is so open-ended and mysterious to people mm-hmm. that being able to look at what qualifies as a success story in that space is really interesting because there's not a million of those. Especially outside of like the big now kind of like almost two or three studios that are sort of, I don't know, I don't want to sound negative, but it's sort of like dominating the iTunes front page, let's right, say. Right, right, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I had some interns tell me uh, last year they were going through some older episodes and we were cataloging some topics for uh, topic-specific mm-hmm. um, episodes, you know, that, that we're going to drop in the future. And one of them said to me, your style has changed so much over the years, hosting. And 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 I realized, like, you know, at TalkHouse... We're learning as we went. Nobody sure. had really done what we did. I mean, there's there were no analogs, guidebook. But yeah, like especially there were back some then. Analogs like Interview Magazine. You look at that, but it's very different realm to yeah. take text, edit it down, and make it digestible. We're taking like freewheeling conversations and and editing them into like pretty tight. You know, maybe an hour and a half conversation to a tight forty minute show. Yeah. We were, you know, we were really learning on the go, and and thankfully we had a very talented team from the off, and you know Michael Azarad is a brilliant writer and editor. He's the guy who did for for people who don't know, he's the one who wrote Our Band Could Be Your Life and mm-hmm. who wrote the definitive Nirvana biography. So you know we had great talent, but but even so, we were you know podcasting was still a new game there, and we were debating how much do we want to emulate radio, how much do we want to do our own thing. Yeah, no, I I agree completely. Like it's it is. The Wild West, and and I think, you know, because because I want to kind of like move into some of the other stuff that you're. I just don't want to talk too much about podcasting and not get to your music, but it's Shut like, duck. you know. But I think one of the things that I notice is I don't want podcasting to be too, you know, dominated by just like every month there's a new true crime thing from Wondery, which I'm not knocking Wondery, like great studio and they're doing mm-hmm. huge things, totally. But like, I don't want podcasting to become homogenized where Wondery is great, but then suddenly there's 17 other networks that are trying to be Wondery, and all of a sudden all we're listening to is murder stories, you know, like... Yeah, that is certainly happening to some degree, I should say, that is happening. It used to feel, I feel like, more varied. Well, see, I think it's still there. You just have to look harder because the big ones are getting more press now. Now all of a sudden these podcasts have, like... PR agents and and I I get press blasts about podcasts. VC money. And I go, holy shit. What the fuck happened? I mean, I started listening to like Disgraceland at the very beginning. And again, not knocking Disgraceland. Disgraceland's a 
fantastic podcast, and I love that series. I don't know that guy, but like, man, Jake Brennan, I think he's done a great job with that podcast. It's a cool. You can't say a lot of podcasts are cool. There's a lot a of podcasts concept. that are great. Yeah. yeah. There's not a lot of them that feel like, oh, this is kind of like a like punk band podcast. But now it's like totally. connected with like iHeartRadio. And again, not knocking that either. I don't want any of this to come off as negative or snipey. Right, it's right. more just like that was an independent podcast. And all of a sudden now it's on this kind of like larger scale with iHeart. And I think the quality is still there, still there. So that's great. But mm-hmm. it is interesting to see what's kind of happening. It almost feels a little bit like podcasting is kind of like what I imagine late 80s, early 90s Seattle must have felt like for a second or like. All of a sudden, you know what I mean? Like everybody's getting their big deal, or or Chicago yeah. in that moment of the next Seattle. Yeah, totally. That, right. It's funny to hear you say that. I, I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, if I had to make a sort of like press quote poll quote for this, sure, I would say my opinion is that a rising tide brings up all ships. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and, I and so the more success that we all get, like the more press Talkhouse gets that's going to help the next guy through the door who wants to do their own innovative music podcast, you know? Now, I'd say there's a lot of caveats to that rule. Like you're saying, there is a, you know, a homogeneity that's that's starting to take hold in the last couple of years in certain sectors. But I also think that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to subvert what I just said earlier about talking about podcasters as a collective, and I'm going to say, I do think mm-hmm. we're doing some of the most innovative stuff sonically and sort of like as far as storytelling goes out there. So... Yeah, it, it's a We're still cutting edge. Yeah, it's it's not a good or a bad. It's not a, like a this the ship is not sinking and it's also mm-hmm. not getting everybody rich. It's it's just kind of like it's happening and it's interesting and and again like all these names that I've mentioned like more power to them for like for glowing up because oh I think that's God, fantastic. Yeah, totally. And I do want to see that happen. every success. And I I don't see yeah. that in like a like political way. I no, like when do. I see any podcast getting on the radar of like iHeartMedia or getting to do a festival thing or getting a press blast, I just think, holy shit, that's awesome. Yeah. Because I will tell you, like, it was not like this, as you know, in the early days. No, not at all. Yeah. Um, All right. So podcast, I mean, I think we could talk for seven more hours about (laughs) podcasting, but, you know, you have other things going on. So on the other side of this, you have a project called Fashion Brigade. Yes. And so, you know, obviously post-Scotland Yard Gospel Choir, like we just mentioned, of course, you... You went into the broadcasting kind of industry and curation side, but at the same time, you also have this music project called Fashion Brigade. You and I have been talking over email for a while <laughs> where you're saying like, man, I got this record. I want to come on your podcast, but I want to wait until the record's coming out. And then all of a sudden, this right. was the moment. Well, so, you touched base about doing it at South by a few years ago, and, yeah. and I was like, you know what? We should do that. And then as I thought about it, I thought, well, my record should probably come out in the next year. <laughs> in the so next four years. Because so I don't we'll want to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, four yeah. years later. This thing's taken me fucking 10 years from like writing to finishing. You want to get it right. So and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, yeah. literally 10 years. So the record is called Fuck the Heartache. Yes. And the project that you're operating under, the title you're operating under is called Fashion Brigade. Bring us into this. When does this start like post Scotland Yard Gospel Choir? Like, you know, what's the story behind this? Well, I briefly mentioned this earlier. Scotland Yard Gospel Choir was in a really, really, really terrible tour van accident. And this was in 2009. We just released our third record. It was our second on Bloodshot Records. It was the self-titled... I can't believe that was a decade ago. Yeah, yeah. It was a decade ago. That was... uh, It was... And the horse you rode in on had just dropped Mm -hmm. maybe a week before the accident. And the band were really very, very injured. Three people were um, very beat up. And then myself and Mary, the guitarist, and Mark were um, 
hospitalized, you know, for more I mean, I remember this. It was, it was such a big story in Chicago media, and it was really unfortunate and very tragic. Well, I remember our drummer, Jay Santana, told me that the next morning he woke up and he had an alarm radio, and what he woke up to was them talking about our accident. Yeah. And it was, you know, just so poignant to hear that. I, I was still in the hospital then, and, and Mark and Mary were hurt way, way worse than me. Yeah. Um, but, but even I had a fractured neck and a, and a fractured back, and, oh. and I had... Um, I had 26 stitches in my head, so I have this sort of question mark-shaped scar still on my head. Oh, my God, um, man. You know, 10 years later, that hair never grew back out of that scar. So as I was recuperating from that, I was really desperate to keep Scotland Yard on track because it, it meant so much to us. We'd all put so many years yeah. of our lives into it, and and we were having and these you had big momentum. successes. Exactly. Yeah. It was like we had this big tour booked. You know, we had all this great press around the album coming out, and it felt... It felt so important to not lose that because of something that was out of our control. And and you know as well as I do that like you take a week, a month, six months, a year or two off, and all of a sudden people are just like, "Oh, where have you?" I mean, exactly. It's different, but it's like exactly. I see kids complain about Rick and Morty. They're like, "Oh, it's so long between seasons," and I'm like, "Try being a Venture Brothers fan, buddy. Try being a Tool fan." Like yeah, you know, like totally. you wait sixty years between things, but totally, you lose man. that momentum. And in music, especially, you know, like. A year off in music is like 10 years off in any other industry. Sure. Because it moves so quickly. And and also, I mean, for me, like, songwriting is the way you fucking understand the world, right? It's the way you understand your feelings. And so I started writing songs and recording at home. I still had my neck brace on at that point. And and I thought, this is going to be the next choir record. You know, these songs I'm writing, it's going to have a different sound. But I really realized the longer that Mark was in the hospital, I mean, he really almost died in the sex. And he was, you know, really, really badly injured. And thank God he's fully functional today and is my one of my best friends and my business partner. We do talk house together, we do pitchfork together and he mixed a lot of fashion brigade. We do, you know, we're godfathers to each other's kids now. Yeah. But um but I realized like this is just this isn't gonna happen. You know, Scotland Yard is effectively over. Yeah. And we played a few more shows after that, but but it was over and, and we split with Bloodshot Records with no rancor because, you know, Bloodshot needs their bands to be out on the road a hundred plus shows a year and we sure. said, look, we're not gonna do it anymore. Yeah, because they're, well, they're indie too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They need the money. And, and Bloodshot said, look, if you guys will do that, give us a record. We'll put it out as soon as you want. And we said, look, we just can't. You know, right. We're done. We're done touring. So started writing this stuff. And and I took some time away from Chicago, and I had this defining moment. I was, in, I was living in Olympia mm-hmm. with one of our very close friends and her wife, and I was in Rainy Day Records there. And they were stocking a bunch of X records, the band X, mm-hmm. that uh, somebody had sold. They had a secondhand section. And I thought, you know what? I have this track that I've been writing. I've been working out here in Olympia at K Records Studio, Dub Narcotic. You know who would be fucking awesome on this? X Scene Cervenka from X. And Rob, the label head at Bloodshot, one of the co-label heads, told mm-hmm. me that she'd been a huge fan of ours. And it had been in the back of my head because I was a huge fan of theirs, but I'd never met him. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to reach out to X Scene. I'm going to reach out to X's team and see if they'd be interested. And she was. And, and from there, I realized, like, this is a collaborations project. This is going to be separate than the choir. This is its own thing. Now, right. I had no fucking clue it was going to take from then nine more years to come to fruition. But sometimes, it, I mean, sometimes it happens. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes you have this concept, you have this idea or vision in your head, and sometimes you have something that just gets knocked out in a day, and then sometimes it takes 10 years. Yeah, well, and you know what's funny? Some of these songs got knocked out in a day but didn't get released for 10 years. Yeah. So there's, when you listen to Fuck the Heartache, there's 11 tracks, and they, they vary wildly. Some have, like, beautiful string trios with literally mm-hmm. members of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. 
Others were recorded on the microphone in my laptop, you know, with me doing <laughs> vocals and, and every instrument, you know, and chopping up beats and all myself. So it was difficult when I was talking to the label about how to classify this stuff. It's put out by this fantastic label, Gentle Reminder, who approached mm-hmm. me and said, look, I'll put this out for you if you if you want. You know, I know you don't want to tour anymore, but we'll do this. And, and I signed on immediately. We thought, how the fuck do we classify what's going on here? Because it has electronic beats, a lot of it, but it has indie pop guitars. And, and Reese Higgins, the label head, said, uh, this is tender and brash indie pop. And he put <laughs> that as a sticker on the front. And I thought, that's it. I'll take it. You know, That's awesome. It draws from Madchester stuff, you know, mm-hmm. the danceability. It draws from some sort of folk elements, and it draws from dance stuff. And, and I really wanted to get weird. So, like, with our first single, it was a double A side. Fuck the Heartache was the one song, and Kissy Face was the other song. And so for Kissy Face, we did two remixes. I had one, I reached out to Thor Harris, the drummer from Swans, and mm-hmm. who had just released the fantastic Thor and Friends record, where he played uh, Xylophone. And, and I said, would you do a xylophone dub remix for this? And he did. <laughs> no one has used that phrase before on this podcast in yeah. 15 years. <laughs> and then I was hanging out with Tyler from LCD Sound System, Tyler Pope, who plays bass in the band and uh, used to play with Chick Chick Chick. And, and we were kicking around ideas of a remix. And he said, you know what I'd like to do is like a Madchester remix. Because he and I, I'd been staying with him in Berlin and we were going out and checking out music. And, and we'd been talking about Madchester. And he said, I want to do a Madchester remix. So... Just in that one single, you can see the disparate sounds. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to this stuff today, and I was like, well, this is all over the place. But in like a, in a cool way. I hope so. It's just so. like there's I a lot so. of influences and a lot of sounds happening. Yeah, there is, and, and a lot of collaborators. I mean, yeah, I mean that's song the other has thing. at least one person. I figured you were just inspired by Ed Sheeran right now. Oh, I'm no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, Ed. Yeah. What have you done? <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, you have a lot of collaborators. Um, Frankie Cosmos, uh, members of, like, Dirty Projectors. You, yeah, like Thor Harris from Swans. When is this record actually hitting? So I know there's a couple singles right now on, like, Apple Music and Spotify. But, like, yeah. when can people hear the full thing? Full record drops uh, this Friday. So by the time this podcast comes out, I may need to have this up this Thursday of this week. Well, so that yeah, would be theory, amazing, man. Yeah. Yeah. But the 26th, the 26th of July, yeah. it drops and, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be 11 tracks. And, and if you pick up the vinyl, we actually put the, um, Tyler Pope and Thor Harris remixes on there because I thought we're not going to press a seven inch for this. I don't know when it's going to be on wax again. So we're putting so those on with the bonus whole thing tracks. Together. Yeah, totally. Totally. So how, much of a relief does this have to feel like how much emotional or mental hard drive space are you clearing off in your head (laughs) now that this is going to be out of your head and in the world in some ways none because i already have seven more ideas and i've even got more songs in the can now with some of these collaborators but in other ways it feels so good because i cannot tell you man how many new year's resolutions i put put out the fashion brigade <laughs> right, record yeah. on and then didn't do it for various reasons. My life was so full and and there was some doubt about do people care anymore? You know, I, I used to sell thousands of records and the idea of going from selling many thousands of records to who knows who cares anymore. I mean, I know it's a vulnerable thing to say, but it was a scary concept. Sure. And, and even now, you know, we're playing a show in August, uh, on August 4th. It's the release show in New York. And Frankie Cosmos is playing and Shamir is playing and they're both singing the songs they sang on the record. And Kid Hawk, my little sister, who's one of my main collaborators, is going to sing with me. But it's like the idea that like, like I didn't book it at a huge venue. You know, we used to regularly play Metro here. We'd, you right, know, we'd yeah, sell yeah. a thousand tickets. I booked a place there that was, I think it holds like a hundred people. And I thought, you know what, let's just sell this out and have sure. a nice small show. 
and uh, and really enjoy ourselves and not have to. It's so much pressure doing a big room. Exactly, it's it a really lot of is. pressure. Yeah, and the thing is. I'm not getting asked to do that. If I did, if the fans were there, I would love to do that. But I, I understand that you don't just get to walk back into where you left off with a new project. Well, and it's it's so hard. It's like one of the things, you know, when I started podcasting, again, I loved radio, but like the time constraints and format constraints were there. At the same time, I was doing music journalism mm-hmm. and transcribing, as you know, mm-hmm. just fucking sucks. And then I would do like a couple events here and there at like Shuba's or Beat Kitchen, and they were so much work. It was an insane amount of work to produce oh, yeah. an event. The fact that anyone is an event producer, I just think, holy shit, that's incredible. But it's like all of those things I thought, wow, there's a lot of pros and cons to these. I like podcasting. It's less reward at the time, but yeah. like also scalability-wise compared to those things, it's less work. Events are hard. You yeah, know, I mean, it's, it's like being an electronic musician instead of like a fucking brass band. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it, filling up a room is a lot of stress. I remember that. I mean, I only did a couple events, let alone like you guys operating at the level that Scotland Yard Gospel Choir was doing, which again, like if you are, you know, I would say like above 30 in Chicago, let's say, like if you grew up here and you cared about music, you knew that name. Well, you know you what's know? funny? When I took on the job of music director for the off-Broadway company that I was working for, the artistic director told me later on, I mentioned to my brother that you're our new music director. And he said, how did you get that guy? And that was such a hilarious perception because to me it was like, oh, my God, wh- how, how did I get so lucky to work for you guys? You know what but I mean? There's but also like her brother had been in Chicago at that time. Yeah. And there was a perception, you know, but but I mean, and I'm not trying to sound either up my own ass or no. to, trying to deflate myself. But I, I legitimately was like. I am so fucking grateful to be working off Broadway in New York. Are you crazy? Like, like how is, did they get this me? This is a fucking dream, dude. Like, yeah. this is awesome. Perception is just, and I mean, it's only gotten worse because of Instagram, but it's like perception is such a weird thing. It is, yeah. You know, is. perception is something where like, I don't know, like we grew up in an era of like, I think the last era where rock stars were still mysterious rock stars. Yeah, totally. And now everything is like. I miss that. I'll be honest. I do miss oh, yeah. that. I also appreciate the new levels of reality that have been uncovered. Every, there's so much more candor now, which yeah. is cool. Like I, I grew up a huge Pumpkins fan growing up in Chicago, and I follow sure. Corgan on Instagram. And Corgan oh, goes God. really in depth with like his posts. His Alex Jones ass bullshit. Well, you know, for better or for worse, but it's like yeah. he answers a lot of questions and he offers a lot of updates. Ah, uh, gotcha. And I think I see. I was going to a negative place. No, no, no. It's it's place, not yeah. a lot of that stuff because I think he he not trying to speak for him. I'm just guessing. Probably realize that the media picks up on right. That. It's undermining his career. Yeah. Right. So it's a lot of just like Q and A. And just updates from the studio. But it's stuff that, like, growing up, and Corgan's just one example of billions. It's like, growing up a Pumpkins fan, I didn't get studio updates on my phone every day from Billy Corgan. Or or insert your celebrity here. It's like, and now there is that just totally unprecedented level of access now. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Like, there was, it's easy to think that if you know somebody's name, especially back then in, like, the 90s, 2000s, like, if you knew the name of a band if you saw their name in print, if you saw them headline the Metro, for all you knew that, you know, they were just superstars. Oh, you know totally. what I mean? Like they were like in a different level, a different zip code, and they were unapproachable as people. I mean, growing up, I thought that if you were in Rolling Stone, you were rich and famous. Yeah, you know? 100%. I now think we my all... friends are all in Rolling Stone, and none of them are rich, and none of them are that famous. They're, you know, they're doing well. They're They're, they're, they're working hard, you know, and they're getting by, but like, a lot of them have roommates still. A no. lot of them, you know, have to sublet their apartment when they go on tour because they can't afford to keep it. A hundred percent. If you saw someone on MTV, that person was 
rich. But see, that ana- it's analogous to what's happening now because Instagram, and I don't want to fall too far down the rabbit hole here. but No, but I know what you're, Instagram I know what you're saying. Instagram does create this perception of success and of contentedness that is so fucking false. And obviously, we've seen a lot of blowback from that. You mentioned Black Mirror before, and I think that they've done such a great job yeah. of, you know, of... Uh, Bursting that bubble, but but I see kids growing up with these perceptions, and and I'm old enough to see through the veneer because I I know what that right. lifestyle is. I've been on the road for ten years. You know, I you know what it's like to actually live in a van versus the people who are right, on Instagram exactly. living in a van. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and boy, it's it's got to be very disorienting for people who are in their teens now to. To not be able to discern that that's hit that yeah hit that. I, I tell lack my students that all the time that like that is not. It's a highlight reel that's exaggerated. It's mm-hmm. not anybody's reality where they're living like that every day yeah. and life is easy. Although, you know, you know what? I do get to meet people whose life is like that. Like, there's like, got to be some. I had Charlie XCX on the show the other sure. day. And I was thinking to myself, you know that famous Lou Reed quote, like, my week is your year. Yeah, like, yeah, Charlie's yeah. week is our year. I yeah, mean, I and, believe and it. And even my, you know, I get to be involved in so many interesting and fascinating things. But, like, you meet people, like... You ever meet Genesis Peorage from Throbbing Gristle? No. Like Genesis, their fucking day is my life as far <laughs> right. as how interesting and fascinating. You know what I mean? So those people are out there, but but yeah, sure. for the most part. But it's, a lot of it's it is artifice. so curated yeah. and so yeah, absolutely, man. But um, well, I mean, we have talked for an hour, and this is awesome. Well, so if you made it to the end of this podcast, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Here's where the treasure is buried. You've been to the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have nothing left for you, and <laughs> and we have given you nothing already. So thank you for sticking with us. No, man. No it, payoff. You know, this is something where, for me, as a kid who grew up in Chicago, coming of age right when the pumpkins hit, who grew up through the 90s rock scene when the rock explosion happened in Chicago with your Liz Fair, Urge Overkill, Local H, everybody, and you guys were part of it, and then getting to be part of that in radio, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's really cool for me personally to get to talk to somebody who was in those moments, who lived through the same thing. So many of the talent that I talk to now on the podcast, which is great and I love doing it, they're younger, they're newer. You know, the veterans have been doing this maybe five years. Mm-hmm. I don't often get to talk to people who are like there in the 90s, there in the 2000s, who remember what Chicago was like then. To get to talk to somebody who was in that moment and now is in this moment and compare notes is a really special and unique thing. So I really value that we got to do this, man. Thank Dude, you so much thank, for coming out. Thank you so much for A, having me in, and for B, putting up with my uh, delays as the record came together. I, oh, man, uh, you know? I mean, I'll say this this for you, man, you know, because I know a lot of your listeners are uh, younger. You know, the work that you did was so influential on everybody that was coming up at that time. So, you know, like all of us as bands were listening to what you guys were playing, you know. Man, that's awesome. And, and then vibing off of that and fine-tuning our shit. So it's like to get you know, to go and back in time, but then also bring it up to... I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, this is not two old guys reminiscing. This is two... How old are you now? I'm, th- I'm 36. I'm yeah, 37. I'm 39. Yeah. So whatever we are, two sure. 30s, two late 30-somethings talking about how shit was, what happened, and why it's still popping now. You and know how I mean? it got and like, to this point. What's inspirational for us right now, you know? Like, yeah. When people ask me, what are my favorite bands? Dude, it's fucking Frankie Cosmos. It's like Orville Peck. It's like these young people. Right. You know what I mean? It's not like, I'm not looking to some of my older idols to make 
amazing records anymore, you know? They made their best record. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not to say I won't still buy every LP they put out. Right. But, like, I want to see what's next. I want to see what's next. And, and I think part of the reason you, are, you and I are still in the game is because we have a hunger for what's going to pop next and what's going to connect with our hearts and then how we can amplify that out and put our shoulder behind it in the little weight that we have in the industry to be like, you guys need to hear this shit. This is life-changing shit. I mean, I agree. Like, I, I am really, like, you know, sure, there is... Of course, comfort in nostalgia. I just bought my tickets to go see the Jay and Silent Bob reboot movie. Nice. You know, and that Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes are going to host. Well, you're talking about the pumpkins. I just saw them at Madison Square Garden last year. Sure. And they, I bought my pumpkins tickets. they fucking slayed, dude. So I love, I love this stuff that I loved still as a kid. And I'm glad that Kevin Smith and the pumpkins and all these things and these mm-hmm. people still are in the game. But also, you're right. Like, I am really, as I know you are, I'm really taken with, like, not just, like, new talent and new artists, but, like, new technology, new platforms, new distribution models. Like I just love seeing that these things are evolving and getting to try different things because you're right. Like I loved working in radio and I have so much love and respect for radio, but like I love that I'm getting to try a lot of different things now. Totally. Yeah. Listeners, if you loved Marilyn Manson, you will love Juice World. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think a lot of these artists, I mean, Billie Eilish, the first time I listened to her, I was like, oh, so this is what like a fourteen-year-old's version of like Boys for Pele would be like. Right totally, now. Yeah. totally, yeah. So, man, so much we covered. Um, the Talk House is the name of the podcast network. Fashion Brigade is the musical project that people can find right now on Spotify and Apple Music. By the time this podcast's out, the full "Fuck the Heartache" record will be out. And I'll say it is a beautiful vinyl pressing. If you do listen and happen to like it. Get the vinyl because we did a limited pressing. There aren't that many of them, and I don't know if we're going to press it again. So yeah. if you happen to like it, do it. Elia Einhorn, man, this is amazing. And, you know, man, I would love to, in Chicago, in New York, wherever, I would love to do some kind of podcasting workshop with you for some kind of audience somewhere I'm here at for some it. time, man. I just I'm think that would be so much fun. I'm here for it. Yeah. I'm 100% here for it. And Let's I got to watch say, the throne, that shit. The most boring watch the throne comparison <laughs> possible. Dude, the studio you have here is uh, is so fucking enviable. I wish I could have this in New York. This Man, is awesome. It, you know, it's it's a labor of love, and, and you know, it, it's the grass is greener, though. Like, I, I see you get to do these, like, live pitchfork things, and I'm not, like, seething with jealousy. I'm just like, oh, that's cool. You know, I'm just like, fuck, that's pretty awesome that that exists. Like, I love that you are part of an operation that is legitimized music podcasting and, and really, like, made that viable and made that legitimate with something like Pitchfork. That means something, you know, that helps people see that this is a real thing. Totally, totally. And, and I mean, huge shouts to the team at Pitchfork because it's the combination of the creative people, you know, the so-called creatives, the business side who actually understand that it takes a lot of money to put on a cool event sure. and, you know, and, and to pull it off properly. The tech guys who are like always working on the back end of the site. It's like, this it's is a professional such a operation. Effort. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is amazing. This is overdue, and I'm glad we got to do this now. And Dude. let's do more. This was fucking awesome. Here for it anytime. Thank you. You've been listening to a production of Dynasty Podcasts. Find more Dynasty Podcasts at DynastyPodcast.com. For the dynamic dynasty, Dynasty Descend.